Good morning, you're listening to WTUL New Orleans News and Views. Hello and welcome to the TaxCast from the Tax Justice Network. I'm Naomi Fowler. Coming up later, how tax justice is justice for people of colour. States have choices. They have a choice point, and that's to cut services and continue to cut their budgets that harm families that are in need, or raise revenue. Raise revenue on corporations, raise revenue on those that are most profitable and the wealthy. And that's a racialized choice. We'll look at the United States and how tax justice can help address systemic racism. By the way, there's no research on this that I could find on the UK context. If you know any different, please let me know. Meanwhile, in the news this month, governments around the world are still bailing out companies with few or no conditions as nations try to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. Protesters have been risking their health to fill the streets to stop police violence against and murder of people of colour and to call for deep societal change. And at the same time, In the United States, there's a huge looting process going on since the US administration is refusing to tell citizens which four and a half million businesses have received $500 billion worth of government bailouts. They say that what they're doing in the name of the public is confidential. That's similar in Britain, by the way, where billions have been granted in bailouts, but almost all of it's hidden from public view. Same situation in other countries too. As we've always said at the Tax Justice Network, companies should at the very least commit to publishing country-by-country reports on their genuine business activities, not using tax havens, not hiding who the real owners are, protecting their employees, making sure there's no shareholder extraction, and you'd think it's obvious, they should be paying fair taxes. Let's talk to John Christensen now with the Tax Justice Network for his take on this month. OK, John, so this month I released research I've been working on for a long time. This is research on Britain's slave owners' compensation loan. And this is when the British government compensated slave owners, not the slaves, after they passed the Slavery Abolition Act in 1833. That debt was only settled by the government in 2015 on behalf of taxpayers, incredibly. And uh, my purpose with the research was to try to identify which financial institutions were involved in restructuring the loan at various points, basically to hit them up for reparations money. And uh, you can read more about my research in this month's show notes. I haven't yet got to the smoking gun to be able to identify those banks and institutions which profited from the loan. But obviously, we, in, we know already that the city of London and Britain itself built its wealth from slavery and empire. We know still today that the city's finance sector has an extractive business model that impoverishes some of the world's poorest nations. We know financial secrecy is another form of empire. At the same time I released my research, events have obviously moved very fast with the Black Lives Matter movement. We've seen statues in Britain commemorating slave traders coming down. The Bristol slave trader Edward Colston has been toppled. Around the world, other statues have been toppled. Many others are now finally being moved to museums to be viewed in their proper shameful context. 
I didn't think I'd ever see that in my lifetime, to be honest. And uh, I didn't think I'd ever see big finance sector companies coming forward and making apologies. That is what is beginning to happen. We should be extremely sceptical. Some of these financial institutions say they're setting up what they're calling reparations funds to go some way to addressing the terrible injustices that they profited from. The insurer Lloyds of London is one of them, and several lawsuits were filed against them over the years by descendants of slaves in the US, and those failed. Now they're acknowledging what they should have done, could have done, a long, long time ago. On the funds themselves, we don't have the details yet. We need to make sure, obviously, that these institutions aren't just going to heap more pain on people by making insultingly small charity donations. I mean, how do we make sure that these funds are large and they're targeted in the right place and they're ongoing? Well, uh, well, first of all, thanks for your blog, which was an eye-opener. Uh, everyone I know who has read your blog is asking the same question. How did Britain reach this situation where the public was still paying interest 180 years later, on a loan taken out in 1834. And why were the slave owners being compensated for the fact that they were forced to stop running a slave economy, but the slaves themselves received no compensation whatsoever? Now, what makes this conversation even more painful is that after the Civil War, a few decades later in the United States, General Sherman issued a a special order providing for the freed slaves in in the southern states, to be granted 40 acres of land. This land was seized from the large Confederate uh, plantation owners. Um, But just months later, after President Lincoln was assassinated, his successor, Andrew Jackson, who, by the way, was a full-blown racist, overturned Sherman's order and blocked the transfer of land. So no compensation from the Brits after they abolished slavery in the Caribbean, and no compensation from the Americans after the Civil War. So the end of slavery just opened up another chapter in the immiseration of black people's lives in America and elsewhere. And many companies and personal fortunes among the white communities were built on slavery and its aftermath. So, so yes, it's time to have a really serious discussion about reparations and why we need economic justice for black communities. Now, the first thing we need to recognise is that we actually know very little about which banks which trading houses, which manufacturing businesses were actually involved in slavery. So we need independent audits of the banks involved, and independent historians must play a lead part in those audits, and then remedy those injustices so it must be independent audit-led. Then there needs to be a proper negotiation on what level of reparations should be paid, and to whom, and who will be responsible for holding reparation in trust funds for the genuine benefit of the descendants of slaves. What must not happen is that banks and other companies use tokenistic reparation payments as an exercise in whitewashing, while not disclosing the full history of their involvement in slavery or in imperial plunder and pillage. It seems clear that most people in North America and Europe have really very little idea about how much of the accumulated wealth of our nations was built on the back of slavery. For example, very few people in Britain seem to recognise that the Industrial Revolution was built on the backs of slaves picking cotton in the southern states or picking tobacco or cutting sugar in the Caribbean region and so on. 
Now, this ignorance of history has fueled a total misunderstanding of, of economic history, which has had consequences right up to the current day, with many people in Britain seeming to want to return to those halcyon days of the British Empire when free trade was imposed by the cannons of the Royal Navy. So it's, you know, it's the consequences of not knowing about history. So I think the former slaving nations, and that includes Britain and France and Spain, Portugal and the United States, now need to do some reparation history, reparative history, understanding their roles in slavery and in colonialism and in imperialism and how they looted and pillaged the wealth of other countries, especially in the global south. And I'd like to see some of those reparation payments put towards creating proper museums of slavery, colonialism and imperialism, so that these aspects of our past are properly explained without the usual whitewash. How about using the palatial offices currently occupied by the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in London, which was originally built in the 19th century as the India Office, how about turning those offices into the British Museum of Slavery, Colonialism and Imperialism? It would be an ideal location to teach children and adults, of course, about this massively important part of uh, our collective history. And another final thought, for anyone who thinks the looting and the pillage stopped at the end of empire, they need to think again. As the old empire died, particularly in Britain, a new financial empire emerged around the city of London, with a vast spider's web of tax havens spreading from Hong Kong and Singapore through Mauritius, the Seychelles, Cyprus, Channel Islands, Gibraltar, Cayman, British Virgin Islands and others. And these tax havens allowed the looting and the pillage of the countries of the Global South to continue just in a different guise. So let's hear no more about the looting being a thing of the past. It isn't. And reparations must also be paid for the more recent plundering. Yes, and uh, it's, it's obvious that reparations are part of an essential transformation. Um, we need to see significant wealth transfers. And there's also been some work on how a reparations tax on big financial sectors might look in that respect, a kind of financial transactions tax to help get that flow of money, that wealth transfer back to the right places on an ongoing basis. Kevil Baradia has done some work on a super tax on the $8 trillion a day financial markets and you can find those details in the show notes. But how can we think about combining tax justice and reparations? You know, there are many good reasons for imposing a financial transactions tax, um, especially since so much of the trading that happens daily on financial markets is more about extracting wealth than creating wealth. So I'm all in favour of a Tobin-type tax, and I think I'd go further in the case of paying for reparations. I also think at this moment of um, pandemic, which is really uh, harming poorer countries worst, this is a moment to use some of the money coming from a financial transaction tax to support poorer countries. Inequality has risen to extraordinary levels over the past 40 years, largely because neoliberalism has played this shocking role in increasing inequality because so much of the agenda was about cutting taxes on wealth and on profits and deregulating markets, especially labour markets. So wealth has become much more concentrated in the hands of billionaires than ever before, and billionaires have seen their wealth increase tenfold. The legacy of centuries of institutionalised racism is that a, a wealth chasm has been created between black and white communities. 
Recent research coming out of Duke University in North Carolina has revealed that the average black family with children in the United States owns just one cent of private wealth for every dollar that the average white family with children holds. We need to tax wealth and we need to redistribute significant amounts of wealth towards the descendants of slaves as reparation for the past and present wrongs. I think there's a strong case for supporting uh, Kevin Baradia's idea for a super tax, so I'm all in favour of financial transaction tax and a wealth tax and a super tax on profits. This is what a tax justice agenda needs to look like. Thanks, John. John Christensen of the Tax Justice Network. Now it's time for the TaxCast special feature. The writer William Faulkner wrote, The past is never dead. It's not even past. And many countries are still rooted in the laws made by those who profited from slavery and empire. This month on the TaxCast, we look at how white supremacy is embedded in the US tax system and how tax justice can help address structural racism. I'm talking to Courtney Sanders and Michael Leachman of the Centre on Budget and Policy Priorities and also to David Sorensen of the People's Tax Page. This is all about power and about who makes the rules. There's a long history of systemic racism in lots of countries, in Britain as well, just like in the United States. Um, And when you look at all the laws and who made them, the laws that we're still living by, in Britain we call them the landed gentry or the landowners who made the system work for them. You write, for much of our nation's history, people of colour had little to no power in state legislatures and white lawmakers could set policies that sustained white dominance. There's a really interesting example, which is the oldest example in the United States, which continues to impact on people of colour today, where, and I'm quoting, wealthy white landowners in Mississippi demanded and won a constitutional requirement for a three-fifths vote in both houses of the legislature for all state tax increases. Can you talk a bit about that? Yes, sure. The history here is that after the Civil War, In the South, the governments, the state legislatures that came into power, they included former slaves and white supporters of the Union cause, anti-slavery, and those legislatures were dealing with a situation where they, they had immense needs to address. For example, they needed to build school systems for the first time for very large portions of their populations, right? It was a war-torn state. And so what they did was they increased property taxes significantly. The property taxes are the major source of revenue in order to raise the revenue needed to make those investments. Over the decades after the Civil War, as uh, white supremacist former slaveholders came back into power, violently overthrew the Reconstruction era governments and took power, they put into place new state constitutions that protected their power and and were deliberately designed to make sure that it, it couldn't happen again, that their taxes would go way up. It would be harder for them to raise taxes on the, the former white slaveholders. One example of this is in Mississippi in 1890, White supremacists, former white slaveholders came back into power. They adopted a new state constitution 
the primary focus of that constitutional debate was to figure out how to disenfranchise African-Americans and to otherwise solidify the power of the white supremacists. And this is one way that they did this. They said, well, we're going to put into the state constitution, which is hard to change, that you have to have a three-fifths vote of both legislative houses in order to raise any taxes at all. And that provision is still on the books today and still making it harder to raise the revenue that's needed to make investments in in poor Black communities and in other communities of colour in the state. So just as in Britain, landowners have historically wielded almost all the political power and made sure they legislated for highly restrictive property tax limits. And in Alabama, that's also a very interesting example of where that is written into the Constitution, as you say, very difficult to change. Yeah, the history here is similar to the history that I was just talking about in in Mississippi. And so in Alabama, one form that that took is to establish uh, limits on how quickly how much property taxes could be increased. Some of the property tax limits that were put in place in that era are still on the books in several southern states, Alabama, Arkansas, Texas, a couple of others. They're still on the books today, and it's really undermined over a long period of time the ability of these states to raise the revenue needed for investments in communities of color and and other low-income communities. So Alabama still has the lowest property taxes per capita of any state in the country. Think about uh, what 150 years or so of that policy being in place and what the cumulative effect of that lack of investment and the privileges accorded to the landholders who are still very, you know, the value of landholding still disproportionately in white hands, what that's meant. Yes. And uh, uh, why inheritance tax is so important? Yes. One of the things that we know as policy analysts is that we know that white supremacy and structural racism created and continue to perpetuate disparities of power and resources. And an example of that is just thinking about who holds wealth in our country. Right. And um, when it comes to questions about access to political power and uh, who's involved in the making of legislation itself today, how representative are state legislatures of the citizens they serve in terms of demographics? Still not very representative. For decades, state tax policy was written by almost entirely all white male legislators. Now, that's changed some over the last few decades, but still African-Americans are underrepresented in state legislatures and other groups of color are even more underrepresented in state legislatures. You know, we're recovering from many things. We're recovering from COVID-19. We're recovering from 400 years of oppression. And we are also recovering from a looming economic downturn. And one thing we know for sure, and we continue to learn with every economic downturn, is that states have choices. They have a choice point, and that's to cut services and continue to cut their budgets that harm families that are in need or raise revenue. 
raise revenue on corporations, raise revenue on those that are most profitable and the wealthy. And that's a racialized choice. Given the country's history and ongoing biases. Yes, I'm particularly interested about some of the really outrageous spends by some states in the United States on incentives for you know, wealthy companies, large companies to set up in their states. And, you know, we've seen the competition for the Amazon headquarters where states were outbidding other states. And it's really bizarre because in some ways, some of those people would say it's very wrong. You mustn't give money to poor people who've been held back so long by the system. But they've got no problem with subsidising wealthy corporations and <laughs> they shouldn't be offering tax breaks and economic development incentives for profitable corporations who should be profit making without those subsidies. I believe that economic development incentives are costing states about $45 billion a year. Ridiculous tax holidays being given <laughs> really uh, makes no sense at all. Yes, exactly right the way that states and localities typically go about economic development, as they say, is really backwards thinking and exacerbates the existing inequities. It's a really upside down way of thinking about how do you grow the economy? You just gave away a huge sum of money that you could invest in your community and grow the economy, grow jobs, grow the quality of life using the resources that you have at your disposal. It's a much more sustainable and equitable way to go about it. Yes, investing in people instead of paying sweeteners to big corporations. And there are lots of tax policies states have the power to enact, which could begin to roll back the structural racism that's disadvantaged people of colour for so long. Yes, some specific policies that states could use is to increase taxes on wealth. You can do that through inheritance taxes. You can do that by increasing the income tax rate on very high incomes. You can increase the taxes on income from capital accumulation. We can do that in a number of ways with more progressive property taxes by taxing the stock gains, the income from stock gains that wealthy people very disproportionately receive. And then you can also do things to um, improve the system, uh, how the system works for people with less income. Right. The most obvious one is to stop raising tax revenue from sales taxes, which we know is a really regressive tax and it disproportionately hits poorer people who are so often communities of colour. And then there's an urgent need to reform some of the things not really thought of as taxes, but they are levies, very unfair levies. Health insurance is one good example in the States. Premiums are like taxes people are paying, but they're paying to private insurers instead of paying it to the government for a more efficient public system based on the ability to pay. And the cost of that has been rising for people for decades and it's completely out of reach for millions who can't afford it. And, of course, there's also the way that states are funding their justice systems. Yes, so increasingly, especially over the last decade, we've raised funding for our courts and our police through fees 
that are imposed on people who are caught up in the criminal legal system. And the impact of that is often egregious. That often means that people end up in jail simply because they can't pay. People are often held just because they've been arrested, not because it's been proven that they've actually done anything wrong. And um, so for many reasons, that's a a really egregious system that, that worsens racial inequities. We could shift how we're funding those justice systems to use more progressive sources of revenue. And one other example is we can increase tax credits that are targeted to low-income families that help to turn around these state and local systems so that they're based more on ability to pay. Yeah. You know, addressing climate change and thinking about carbon tax is also important because as our states are having a lot of disasters, you know, whether that be hurricanes and, um, you know, flooding and all these different things, it is also something that states have to address. And the people who are hardest hit or is harder to recover from natural disasters are communities of color, are people who have low incomes. And so, the people who are somewhat responsible for creating all of this CO2 emissions are also contributing to how people are impacted by those things. And and states can take that in consideration because they play a large role in making sure that communities recover from those natural disasters. And budgeting for that is so important. So if we take incentives away from corporations and really think about the taxes that we're putting on things like carbon tax, it can make a huge difference in communities, especially those on the coastal levels of the U.S. Right. We know we need to take urgent measures and states need to finance a green transition. Yet the bigger businesses are in the United States, the more likely they are to be fueling the climate crisis. Over the decades, they've got used to paying less and less taxes and getting more and more tax breaks. And wealthy people as well. They've got a much higher carbon footprint than ordinary people. But the world they live in was designed by them for them. Let's look at the difference now between a person born into a wealthy family in the United States who inherits a lot and they want relief on their pile of cash versus a person whose family doesn't have enough to eat and needs assistance. This is David Sorensen of the People's Tax Page. The inheritance tax. This is the tax that once you hit $11 million, the government takes 40% of it when you, when you pass it on, when you die. But the you know, difference in the way the government treats this and, and lower programs are, are stark when you look at the fact that this tax is, in addition to obviously being easy to avoid, uh, this tax is adjusted to inflation. So every year that $11 million increases. If you then turn around and you look at the other side of the equation, you look at the people who are struggling, you look at our safety net programs, most of our safety net programs aren't adjusted to inflation. And so that means that every year, the safety net programs that we're putting money into they get less money. You know, our, our dollar is worth a little less and the, the safety net programs have to be supporting a few more people. And you combine that and these safety net programs are devalued over time. Uh, a stark example of this is the temporary assistance for needy families, TANF. And that program was started in 1996. But because it wasn't adjusted for inflation, it has the same funding today as it did then or a very similar amount of funding today. So what's happened is that program is now trying to support more people against a stronger dollar without any more money. And so that's 
you know, one stark example of how we sort of treat the high end differently in, in raising revenue. We give them breaks compared to how we treat the low end in spending our revenue. We like to, you know, keep it pretty close to the chest. And when the COVID-19 crisis hit, the US government made things worse as well by giving corporates all sorts of cash and also by giving the ultra-wealthy another $176 billion when the pandemic hit through what's called the CARES Act. So they looked after the wrong people again. Yeah, absolutely. So when the American government wrote the CARES Act, they first decided they were going to spend $2 billion on it, something like that. And within that $2 billion, one of the things they decided was that they were going to create a tax break for ultra-wealthy real estate investors. And what it allowed them to do was it allowed them to go back three years and write their losses off from those years. And that was added up to be about $176 billion. The real kicker to this is that the only way you had those losses in the first place was if you were earning more than $500,000 a year, which meant that you were really rich. So in the CARES Act, they wrote in this provision for real estate investors to give them a massive tax break. Uh, you know, it, it would amount to millions and millions of dollars for individuals. At the same time, you know, they weren't really funding those safety net programs that I was just talking about. Right. With the COVID-19 pandemic, how bad is the situation for states at the moment? I mean, the hit on state budgets looks like it's going to be the biggest on record. And you point out, Michael and Courtney, that states really should avoid the mistakes they made in responding to the recession to avoid making a bad situation worse. Yeah, the, the budget shortfalls that states face in this downturn are unlike anything that we've seen at least since the Great Depression 90 years ago or so. States depend on income and sales taxes for 70% of their revenue, and both of those revenue sources have fallen off the table because so many businesses are closed and so many people have been laid off. At the same time, their costs are increasing because more people need public assistance because they need to uh, do a whole variety of things to fight the virus. And the combination of those things has really created an, an extraordinary fiscal crisis for states. We estimate that the shortfalls that states will face in the coming fiscal year will be much worse than anything they faced during the Great Recession, what we call the Great Recession 10 years ago, which at the time was record-breaking and historic. You know, we live in truly unprecedented times. Actually, in April alone, states and localities furloughed or laid off nearly 1 million workers, a number that eclipses such losses following the Great Recession. Yes, and um, states need to be monitoring much better um, their policies in relation to marginalised communities through things like a special commission or task force to review their COVID-19 responses. And you can see how important that is when you realise that in France and Germany, they don't even count how much more likely people of colour are, for example, to be stopped and searched by the police, uh, to be discriminated against in the workplace, in the housing market, or to die of the coronavirus. So they're not collecting data on the communities of colour. So if you're not counting it, you can't 
know if you're formulating good policy. Yes, absolutely. You know, disproportionately, black counties have five times and disproportionately Hispanic counties have three times as many confirmed COVID cases per capita as disproportionately compared to white counties, according to some recent analysis. And in early state and local data, it also showed that Black and Hispanic people were dying of complications from COVID-19 at much higher rates. And so it's important for states to think about the state health departments and how they are tracking the data in ways that follow best practices and are comparable across jurisdictions so that we can understand the crisis impact across race and ethnicity and other identities. Understanding its desperate impacts is a critical step in determining the policy responses that can address the underlying factors that have led to inequitable health outcomes. And, you know, another piece to this is these health disparities exist because Too often, people of color have experienced years of economic hardship, received lesser quality of health care, and have been segregated into neighborhoods that lack access to things like nutritious food and green space for exercise and clean air and jobs that pay enough for people to have the money or time for recreational activities or to think about their wellness. And so what what the COVID-19 crisis has really exacerbated and underlined for us is that these health disparities are rooted in a lot of economic but health system racism and discrimination and bias and we need to track these numbers we need to make a case for people to track you know by identities so that we can really show what's happening and who's really being impacted you've been listening to the tax cast thanks for joining us You can see the reports on tax and racial equity from Courtney Sanders and Michael Leachman of the Centre on Budget and Policy Priorities on www.cbpp.org. David Sorensen of the People's Tax Page is on www.peoplestaxpage.org. They have a great podcast there too. Tune in next month for part two of this discussion on how tax justice is racial justice. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next month. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, it's hard to understand how journalists can report Donald Trump's repeated claim that the U.S. should do less coronavirus testing because, quote, with smaller testing, we would show fewer cases, close quote, without following up with, and that's why we're calling for his resignation. Trump's bizarre delusions on COVID-19 aren't just bats in his attic. They've driven a response that is nothing short of disastrous. 
He's backing up the no-test-no-disease fallacy, for instance, by cutting funding for testing sites around the country, a move that, Talking Points Memo reports, local officials met with a, quote, mixture of frustration, resignation, and horror, close quote. We'll get an update on the preventable COVID nightmare and U.S. media's approach to it from FAIR editor Jim Narikas. Also on the show, as public protests against racist police violence grow, so too does law enforcement's capacity to criminalize that protest, including with the use of tools like facial recognition technology, which is almost certainly more prevalent and more meaningful to you than you realize. Police have access to millions of images from social media, from cameras on the street, from driver's licenses, but little transparency about how they're using those images and few rules for how they should. We'll talk about that with Claire Garvey, Senior Associate with the Center for Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. That's coming up, and we're going to get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. AP reports hospitalizations and caseloads from the novel coronavirus rising to new highs in several U.S. states. In some places, new cases more than doubled. Only the truly selective listener can avoid accepting that this country's abject mismanagement and failure of leadership continue to lead to thousands and thousands of avoidable deaths and illnesses. But the U.S. is still pushing to reopen because the people most likely to be harmed have less political clout than those who can more comfortably avoid hazards. It's a kind of nightmare playing out in broad daylight. But have corporate media given up on doing more than charting it? How else could they meaningfully intervene? For an update on the pandemic and media's coverage of it, we're joined now in studio by FAIR's editor, Jim Narikas. Welcome back to Counterspin, Jim Narikas. Thanks for having me back on. Well, I think if you just landed from space and skimmed the news media, you'd see places in the country described as in various phases of reopening. And you would think that though there might be disagreement about it, the U.S. had essentially weathered the worst and was moving cautiously toward recovery. For those who can't bring themselves to look at the latest information or who are frankly confused by it, where is the U.S. right now in terms of beating back the pandemic compared to other places in the world? It is very striking when you look at the course of the coronavirus in the United States and you compare it to what's going on, particularly in other wealthy countries that have the same kind of resources that the United States has. The contrast between the countries that have brought the spread of coronavirus virtually to a halt and the United States, where after a, a slight drop from the worst spread in April down to kind of a plateau of you know, maybe two-thirds of what we were, we're seeing, it's now headed sharply back up. And we will soon, barring some reversal of fortune, be passing up the heights that we reached before, be on a, a uncharted territory of levels of this pandemic. 
it's just incredible when you see just the images of the trajectory, you know, the line in the U.S. going up and up compared to other countries. It's, it's frankly um, heartbreaking and infuriating. It really does call into question the whole model of U.S. media, which is based on this idea that everyone should be able to read the newspaper and think, well, that's pretty much the way I see the world. And when you have a political party that is in power taking the position that uh, deadly danger is not really so dangerous, and in fact will, will fade away without us doing anything about it, to produce news that will allow people with that worldview to say, well, yeah, this is speaking for me. This is covering the, the world as I see it. You know, To try to mesh that kind of denial into a, a realistic view of a, a serious, deadly problem facing the nation, it inevitably produces just confusion and a completely incomprehensible picture of, of what's going on that is the, the basis for people saying, well, I think that uh, we've got this pretty much under control now and are ready to go about business more or less as usual. That is the kind of spike that we're seeing is the direct consequence of that kind of approach. Well, when you were here last month, you were taking issue with New York Times reporting on Sweden as having had apparent success without anything so extreme as a lockdown. Their experience would seem to argue for less caution, not more, said that Times piece by Thomas Erdbrink and Christina Anderson. What's the latest there? We have looked at Sweden a, a couple times at FAIR because it has been offered as this sort of alternative approach to the coronavirus that really you don't have to take it so seriously and can let it run its course and eventually you'll be immune. You'll have herd immunity. This is never uh, never borne out by the numbers. You know, when people were, were saying, look how well Sweden has done, Sweden had not done well at all. Uh, I believe it, when we wrote the, the first piece on it, it had the 10th the highest per capita death toll in the world and compared to its neighbors was just looking terrible. And now the, the latest piece that, that we saw in the New York Times was about how the other Scandinavian countries, Norway, Denmark, Finland, are not letting people from Sweden into their country. And it's because those countries have basically halted coronavirus and are now able to resume life more or less as usual, you know, while being careful to, to look for the stray outbreaks. Whereas Sweden, it's still you know, running rampant. And the same writer, Thomas Erbrink, from the New York Times was writing now about Sweden being shut out of the other countries. And he really made it sound like this had a lot to do with the resentment that other Scandinavian countries feel towards the success of Sweden. And they, he cited IKEA and Volvo and ABBA as reasons why they are so jealous. And, and they took seriously this idea that, that it, it's not the fact that, you know, in the case of, of Finland, they have one one hundredth of the amount of, of new infections as Sweden. I think the, the closest is Denmark has, has one twelfth of the infections of Sweden. And the idea that you would, after you've painstakingly driven out this disease uh, at you know considerable cost, uh, that you would let people from a country that has really not taken the disease seriously at all to just wander into your country and, and start new outbreaks is kind of crazy. But for the New York Times, the reporter who had been touting Sweden as a model seemed unwilling to acknowledge just how crazy it would be to let a country that had followed this model 
wander around your, your country without restriction. Yeah. Surely it must just be that ABBA resentment that is that is uh, driving that, that conflict. Well, that earlier Times piece described Swedes as laughing and basking in freedoms considered normal in most parts of the world not long ago. And it's obvious that some politicians and pundits here think that laughing and basking in freedom is the cure for, you know, whatever ails. But it seems like the EU restrictions that we've just seen on travel from the United States, that's got to throw some kind of cold water on this magical thinking. I mean, doesn't it? Our relationship to the European Union is, is very much like the relationship of, of Sweden to the, to the other Scandinavian countries. Uh, while we have been acting like, you know, we've done a good enough job on the coronavirus and now can get back to what we were doing before, other countries have really taken seriously the fact that they have this deadly pandemic going on and have brought the spread down to, um, you know, uh, I don't think any European country has eliminated it, but they have very much the new cases down to a, a trickle. Europe is talking about letting international travel resume, and they're making lists of the countries that can and can't send their people to, to the European Union. And according to the New York Times, it, it looks like the, the United States is definitely going to be on the, the do not visit list, which, again, it, it would be nonsensical to have put the effort into controlling this virus and then let people from a, a place that has not made a real effort to control it into your country because a substantial number of people in the United States are carrying this virus and would spread it to their European destinations. Well, the pandemic and anti-police violence protests are obviously the mega stories of the day, and they do intersect. Um, it's kind of been kind of a thing going around that we've been hearing about. What do you think we should know about the notion of marches and demonstrations as potential virus spreaders? You do see a lot of people have been talking about how dangerous it is to protest and how this is going to inevitably result in a spike in cases. And it really hasn't. When you look at places like New York, like Minneapolis, Minnesota, uh, the District of Columbia, where there have been a lot of protests, you have not seen a corresponding spike in infections. The places where you have seen big spikes are largely in the South and West, where places have declared it was time to, to resume normal business operations. I really think that people underestimate the distinction between outdoor and indoor activities and activities with masks and without masks. Those really do make a huge difference in terms of the, of the danger of spreading the the disease. And also the fact that the number of people involved in activity makes a great deal of difference. If you're talking about something that a few percent of the population is doing, it's always going to have a much smaller impact on the trajectory of the infection than something that most of the population is doing. But when you see people doing something that you don't like, there's a tendency to think, oh, well, that's a, a thing that they shouldn't be doing anyway. If there's any risk at all, it's too much risk. And people really need to be thinking more probabilistically, are you really increasing your chances of, of spreading the virus compared to what you would be doing in your everyday life and how many people are doing it? Which is why I think the, the most dangerous thing that people can be doing is going back to work because it's generally done indoors. Most places it's done without masks and it's something that you do eight hours a day, five days a week. 
and it has the potential to really create a huge spike in cases of COVID if we stop you know, working remotely and, and start congregating in offices again. Though the, there was an interesting study that came out talking about the economic impact of uh, the coronavirus and noting that the people who are hardest hit by this are poor people whose jobs very seldom allow them to work from home and particularly poor people who work in rich neighborhoods because the rich people are able to isolate, are taking this disease seriously and not going out to the places they would have been going out. Uh, and so the, the much poorer people who work in those places are economically very badly hit. Well, finally, I incline toward the skeptical, but I kind of balked at the New York Times interactive feature that they had up on June 25th, not the content of the feature itself, but the headline, How the Virus Won. There's certainly been just a tragedy of missed opportunities, but it can't be that there's nothing we can do now or that media could do now. There is this assumption that, as Ned Flanders' parents said, we've tried nothing, we're all out of ideas. The decision to not have a serious national strategy to combat the coronavirus, that was a choice. Uh, We decided that we were not going to do what it took to actually stop it and uh, instead try to mitigate the the spread of it uh, by, you know, sort of slow down the spread of it so it doesn't overwhelm our, our healthcare system. If you don't stop the virus, it will eventually spread to the virtually the entire population. You know, people think that 70, 80% of, of people will get infected. The disease has something like a, a 0.5 to 1% fatality rate. When you do the math, you are talking about millions of people in the United States alone dying from the coronavirus. That is the implication of a strategy that does not try to stop the virus. And I think we've never had an actual conversation about whether a seven-figure death toll is something that we are willing to accept or not. We've been speaking with Jim Narikas. He's the editor at FAIR.org. Jim Narikas, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thanks for having me on. Robert Williams, an African-American man in Detroit, was falsely arrested when an algorithm declared his face a match with security footage of a watch store robbery. Boston City Council voted this week to ban the city's use of facial recognition technology, part of an effort to move resources from law enforcement to community, but also out of concern about dangerous mistakes like that in Williams' case along with questions about what the technology means for privacy and free speech. As more and more people go out in the streets in protest, what should we know about this powerful tool and the rules, or lack thereof, governing its use? Claire Garvey is a senior associate with the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law, lead author of a series of reports on facial recognition, including last year's America Under Watch, face surveillance in the United States. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Claire Garvey. Thank you so much for having me on. Well, I would like to ask first for a sense of the prevalence of face recognition technology and who is 
affected. People might imagine that it's a tool like fingerprinting that police sometimes use to catch criminals. But then I read in the center's earlier report, evocatively titled The Perpetual Lineup, that one in two American adults is in a law enforcement face recognition network. How can that be? What does that mean? That's right. Face recognition use by police in the United States is very, very common. Over half of all American adults are in a database that's used for criminal investigations thanks to getting a driver's license. Robert Williams was not identified through a former mugshot. He was identified through his driver's license, which most of us have. In addition, we estimate conservatively that over a quarter of all 18,000 law enforcement agencies across the country have access to use face recognition. The most concerning feature is that there are few, if any, rules governing how this technology can, or more importantly, cannot be used. Well, when you say Williams was identified through a driver's license, you mean... In other words, it's not, we think of someone going through mugshots, you know, a crime has been committed and you you go through mugshots to see if you can find someone. But this is really, I mean, we really all are in a lineup potentially all the time if police are using databases of things like driver's licenses to match with. That's right. Generally speaking, if you haven't committed a crime or had interaction with law enforcement, you're not in a fingerprint database that searched on a routine basis in criminal investigations. You're certainly not in a DNA database that's searched for criminal investigations. And yet, thanks to the development of face recognition technology and the prevalence of face photographs on file in government databases, chances are better than not you are in a face recognition database that is searched by the FBI or your state or local police or accessible to them for investigations of any number of types of crimes. Well, and to say that the technology and its use is not perfect. I mean, law enforcement can search for matches based on a pencil drawing or based on a picture of a celebrity or a photoshopped picture. I I found that very interesting. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about so-called probe photos. It's very odd. So face recognition, very simply, is the ability of law enforcement or whoever else has a system to take a photo or a sketch or something else depicting an unknown individual and compare it against the database of known individuals, typically mugshots, but also driver's licenses. In many jurisdictions, we have found that those probe photos are not limited to photographs. They mostly are, and those are from social media, those are from cell phone photos or videos, those can be from surveillance cameras, but in some jurisdictions, those are also forensic sketches, artist renderings of what a witness describes a person looking like, or forensic bus created by a lab, or in the instance of the NYPD, in at least two cases, officers used what they called celebrity lookalikes, somebody, a celebrity who they thought the suspect looked like to search for the identity of the suspect. This will fail. Biometrics are unique to an individual. You can't substitute someone else's biometrics for your own. That just goes against the the rules of biometrics. You also can't put in a sketch of a biometric. A sketch of a fingerprint sounds ridiculous. 
you can't put a sketch of a face in and expect to get a reliable result. And yet despite this, companies themselves who are selling this tool do advocate in some instances for the use of this type of probe photo of sketches. They say that that is a permissible use of their technology, despite the fact that it will overwhelmingly fail. Well, and the technology being especially bad for black people, that's not just anecdote. There's something very real there as well. Right. Studies of face recognition accuracy continue to show that the technology performs differently depending on what you look like, depending on your race, sex, and age, with many algorithms having a particularly tough time with darker skin tones. Pair that with the fact that face recognition will be disproportionately deployed on communities of color. And if it's running on mugshot databases, face recognition systems will disproportionately be running on databases of particularly young black men. In San Diego, for example, a study of how the city used license plate readers and face recognition found that the city deployed those tools up to two and a half times more on communities of color than the population of San Diego, showing that these tools are focused on precisely the people that they will probably perform the least accurately on. Well, the power is obvious of this tool and the potential for misuse. So, so what about accountability, you started to say? How would you describe the state at the federal or local level or wherever, the state of laws or regulations or guidelines around the use of face recognition? The laws have not kept up with the deployment of face recognition. As it stands now, a handful of jurisdictions have passed bans on the use of the technology, most recently yesterday in Boston. That was following San Francisco, Oakland, and a couple of other jurisdictions in California and Massachusetts. But for a vast majority of the country, there are no laws that comprehensively regulate how this technology can and cannot be used. And as a consequence, it's up to police departments to make those determinations, often with a complete absence of transparency or input from the communities that they are policing. Well, finally, let's talk about the story of the day. We've read about the FBI combing through the social media of protesters and charging them under the Anti-Riot Act. The FBI also flying a Cessna Citation, a highly advanced spy plane, infrared thermal imaging, flying that over Black Lives Matter's protests. Where does this surveillance technology intersect with the right to protest? What are the conflicts that you see there? Face recognition risks chilling our ability to participate in free speech, free assembly, and protest. Police departments themselves acknowledged that. Back in 2011, there was a privacy impact assessment written by a bunch of various law enforcement agencies that said face recognition, particularly used on driver's license photos, has the ability to chill speech, cause people to alter their behavior in public, leading to self-censorship and inhibition, basically preventing people from participating or exercising their First Amendment rights. Face recognition is a tool of biometric surveillance. And if it's used on protests, it will chill people's rights to participate in that type of behavior. And it's particularly critical in a moment where we are protesting police brutality and over-surveillance and the over-militarization of police to take into account 
how advanced technologies like face recognition play into historical injustices and over-surveilling of communities of color. Face recognition and other advanced technologies must be part of the discussion around scaling back where law enforcement agencies are systems of oppression and of marginalization. Well, how can we protect ourselves and one another? We do want to keep going out in the street, but what maybe should we be mindful of? We should be mindful that any photograph or video taken at a protest and published, put online, can be used to identify the people who are caught on camera. So I urge anyone taking photos and videos to keep taking those photos and videos, but train the photos on police, train the videos, train your cameras on the police, to the extent possible, blur faces, especially if you think you're in a jurisdiction that will use face recognition to identify and then go after protesters. Help us keep the anonymity of these protesters in the world where face recognition does make any photograph into a potential identification tool. It's really important for all of us to be aware of that. While it shouldn't be this way, we should have rules that protect us. We don't at the moment, but we have to be proactive in protecting the identities of the people that show up on the other side of our camera. We've been speaking with Claire Garvey, Senior Associate with the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. You can find them online at law.georgetown.edu. Claire Garvey, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me on. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The website's also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter called Extra and our Action Alert Network. The show is engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.